When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where we break down the complex worlds of health, fitness, family, business, and relationships with the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Gabby Reese, and I'm here to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life isn't always easy. Let's try working on managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, Life is just one big experiment, and we're all doing our best. And so what you see is that for some women, when they discontinue hormonal birth control, is that they will get either an increase in sexual desire and attraction to their partner, or they'll get a decrease in sexual desire and attraction to their partner. And of course, in some cases, you get no, you know, you get no effects at all. It's so very idiosyncratic and just like, you know, I guess all things in life, but certainly with this. I think that we're going to hit on some better solutions. I, I, I feel confident in that. I think that the more women that we have who are touched by this experience, you know, because I mean, we all experience this and, and, and for our daughters where it's like how do we regulate our fertility and how do we do it in a way that's going to be you know minimally negatively impactful on on our development and, and who we are and that's such such an important question I mean I, I think it's one of the most important questions out there because it's just how important fertility regulation is for us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Sarah Hill. She is a PhD and the author of a groundbreaking book. I loved it. It's Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones, and the Law of Unintended Consequences. Now, before all my men run away, if you have a daughter, if you have a female partner, or even if you have a mother, because, you know, we're always like, oh, my mom is crazy. Let's bridge the gaps. Let's get information about birth control. And even though We've all benefited from having the opportunity to have birth control because it really did. It was sort of this liberation, like you can go to work. You didn't have to pay the consequences of, you know, or unwanted pregnancy. But there's a lot of really surprising things about what it does to us in the long run. So her extensive expertise in neuroscience and psychology, she really brings just this fresh perspective to the conversation surrounding birth control. And she challenges and expands our understanding of its impact on women's minds, yes, and who you choose, like who you want to have sex with and who you want to marry and, you know, and your body. And she is a professor and researcher and she dives deep into the effects of birth control on the female brain. She's here to share just a a ton of fascinating findings and just shed light on the intimate connection between hormones, which we know. I mean, I feel like, especially as females, we really are in touch with these cycles, mental health, and our overall well-being. I thought this is an incredibly important and empowering conversation because, of course, you want to make the conversation if you're not in a place that you are, you know, you don't want an unwanted pregnancy. Maybe you choose that you, you don't want to go down that path or you're doing other things. 
Absolutely. But this idea of having, being equipped with information that you can make decisions that are best for you now and in the long run, not only for your life, but for your mental health and for your body. And we talked about so many incredible things like this ideal of like certain parts of our cycle, you know, when your estrogen's high, you're sort of picking a different type of partner versus when you're in the phase where your progesterone is more dominant. It's kind of a, a wait and see, a still, a fixed position that you would choose a different partner. So there was some interesting data that it suggested, hey, well, what happens when one person's either not on birth control or on a kind of a low dosage hormone and another person, and then they pick partners, then they get off all these hormones, sort of these fascinating things that happen to our sex lives and our desire, some interesting biological things. And it, and in this time, I'm interested, I have three daughters, you know, in just empowering people so they can navigate and make the just the best choices for themselves. So I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation I have with Sarah Hill. Dr. Sarah Hill, thank you for joining me and for having this most important conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We'll do this again in person, okay? Because I think this is something yeah, yeah. that we should probably talk about six different times. Because it's a I agree. It's not that it's a conundrum, but it's it's sort of understanding. Well, first let's just talk about the book. It's why did you yeah. write this book? What made you say, okay, this is a topic worth really drilling down on? Well, it was, it was really two things. Um, the first thing was just my own experiences with hormonal birth control and going off of it and seeing the differences in the way that I felt and experienced the world um, when I was on it compared to off of it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, I've spent my career studying women's brains and hormones and how hormones affect motivation and everything. And I never thought twice about the hormonal birth control I was taking um, it really opened my eyes to the just how much of a blind spot we've all had mm -hmm. when it comes to hormonal birth control. It's like we think about our hormones and it's like we know that they affect the way that we feel. Women talk about it all the time, but then we take the pill and because we're only thinking about it in terms of how it affects us from the neck down, mm -hmm. like what it's doing with our, you know, preventing pregnancy, that there's just been this big disconnect about the idea that if you change somebody's hormones, they're going to change the way that their brain is operating. And so I started doing after I went off the pill and realized how different I felt and then how embarrassed I felt for not having it like ever occur to me <laughs> that my pill was affecting me psychologically when I'd been publishing papers about the psychological effects of hormones. I realized that there was this big gap in information out there for people that really needed to be to be addressed. So how long did it take you to kind of put together all the information for, you know, your brain on birth control for the book itself? Yeah, gosh, you know, it took about, uh, it took about a year and a half of research and like really digging into what's been done and what hasn't been done. And then, you know, leading up until that, I had um, spent uh, some of my research career really investigating the effects of hormones on women's psychology. So that stuff I'd been researching for years, I just never made that connection about, oh, well, then when you change all of that, then what happens? And so then that was sort of a new frontier for me. And, uh, and so going through all of that literature, yeah, it took about, took about a year and a half. So, I mean, I'm going to start with the easiest 
questions first, which is what just for you personally, and I know everyone's different, but there are patterns with our, with our, with our hormones that we're going to get into, but for you, how soon did you sort of feel a difference and what were you feeling that was different compared to when you, when you got off the pill? Yeah. So I, cause in, just to give a little more background, I was on it for more or less nonstop for over a decade. Like I went off it really briefly when I had both my kids and then when I was breastfeeding. Um, but you know, that time is like a totally different hormonal. I mean, the pregnancy picture is different. The breastfeeding picture is different, but I hadn't just kind of hung out as a naturally cycling, non-pregnant, non-lactating human. And it, for any period of time for like 11 or 12 years. So I was on it for, I was on it and then just like off it for these, you know, like the two years I spent breastfeeding um, and being pregnant with child one. And then another two years for child two. It was about three months post. I remember that I was, I had after three months after I'd been off of it, off of the pill. And I remember that I was driving in a car and I was with a friend of mine and I was like, I just feel like getting into some trouble. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I just feel like doing something cra like crazy. And she's like, like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I want to do, but I just like, I feel this energy for like, I want to do something. And I was like, gosh, and I got home and I was like, like, what are you, like, what are you doing, Sarah? And it was like sort of after that moment, I began to like really pay attention to the fact that I had over the course of, the, of that, those three months sort of shifted back into this version of myself that I hadn't been since I was like pre-pill, which was like 17, where mm -hmm. I was like going to the gym a lot more frequently because I felt like moving my body and I was downloading new music for the first time in years. I hadn't downloaded new music in probably it was a, a decade and I'd started like listening to music again. And I was like in the kitchen, like cooking more because I just like wanted to do things that were like pleasurable and, and energy expending. And I was like, I was having sex a lot more frequently, like I used to. And I was like, I was sort of cataloging this after that night rose with my friend just saying like, I just feel like getting into some trouble. <laughs> I find it interesting that you could even decipher. So this is after having kids. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing because, right, we have all these phases in our life where, okay, we're teenagers. Let's just say without going, let's not even talking about chemical birth control. Let's just say in life, you know, we're wildly yeah, yeah. self-conscious and kind of trying to figure it out as teenagers. And then I feel like 16, 17, 18, you kind of maybe get into a better groove. And then, you know, it's like you're busting your butt. You're trying to learn who you are. You know, you're in school doing these highly academic, uh, undertakings. And then in our twenties, it's like, Oh wait, who am I? And we sort of go, <clears throat> and then in there, I feel like our close to our thirties, we sort of go, well, Oh wait, here's a voice in here. Uh, I'm going to start to exercise that. Then having kids, it, I find it interesting though, that you could decipher that this was something different because it's hard to look up, right? It's hard to to notice ourselves because we have so many different changes and different responsibilities. So I really think it's interesting that you also were able to connect it, that something else was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that part of it was, um, of course, what I do. I mean, it's like, I've been studying women's hormones and, and the way that they affect motivational states. And so I think that because of that, I was able to say, 
I know what's happening here. What's happening here is I'm getting my hormones back. And that makes absolute sense that I am, that I have this energy that I want to do something with and, you know, and with sex and with, and with being interested in listening to music again and just wanting to move my body around. And, um, it just really, it, it all connected for me that way. I think in part because of the, the research that I do. I mean, it's really fortunate. So why did you go on the pill for the sake of, um, you know, pregnancy? You know, because a lot of times, and you talk about this, you got a young girl, she's 13, 14, the hormones are going crazy, their skin, they're this, they're that, maybe they are interested in becoming sexually active. So we have these right. reasons and you, you yourself, I have three daughters, you have a daughter. So if you are a teenager listening to this or a parent of a teenager, uh, yes. you know, it makes sense of, of young pregnancy is not something a lot of us are prepared to do, but yet sexual drive, it shows up. Here it is. Here it is. So, and it's really like, you know, when you're young, it's like kind of really exciting, but I'm curious just starting there because we'll get into, you know, all of the things that happens with chemical hormones, but for a parent listening to this, it's like, you know, weighing out this, these options, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to guide our, our, our young girl, you know, our young daughters? Mm -hmm. How do we support them? How do we get the right information? Because it's a dance. It's really tricky. It is. It is. I think that, you know, one of the, the most important messages um, from the book is we need more and better options for women. Mm. Um, this idea that sort of the, what we're being, the position that we're being put in is choosing between, you know, potentially ruining our lives with an unplanned pregnancy and our teenage years, which by the way, is the biggest predictor of poverty for women, period, hands down and by like a mile. Okay. And so, you know, here you have this thing where you have your, you know, a knife against your throat with that. But then also the idea of taking synthetic hormones and suppressing the development of your HPG axis or your brain ovarian axis and suppressing the development of that by giving you synthetic hormones. It's like, you know, it's like two sets of bad options. Um, and, 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 you know, and there are other options and, and, um, you know, just to give an example, you know, there is a, there's a hormonal IUD that has hormones in it, which does the same thing. It'll suppress your HPG axis, which you don't really want to do to a developing girl whose brain is still developing and needs those sex hormones in order to develop like along the normal adult female uh, developmental trajectory. Mm. But there's also um, a copper IUD that doesn't have hormones in it. And that's something that has the same types of pregnancy prevention benefits for women um, and, and girls, but doesn't come along with those same, um, you know, those hormonal changes that might not necessarily be positive for teenage girls. But I mean, essentially, in terms of something that's long acting and, you know, super effective, that's kind of the only thing that we've got out there as a possibility. And for a lot of women, if I mean, and girls, especially because before you have children, when you get an IUD put in, it does not feel good. It never feels good, but it feels particularly gnarly when, um, when you haven't had kids and having to have that put in and, and it makes women's cramps worse at first. And, you know, it's not a terribly pleasant method, but it's, it, it feels better after time. Like usually after a couple of months, women feel okay with it, but it's like, 
you know, I mean, the idea that it's kind of like that or, you know, condoms. And I don't know about you, but like my own experiences with those are like not positive. And then, you know, if you track your, you know, you do like family or fertility awareness method, like I wouldn't trust my 16 year old with that. I mean, she can't even, like, she didn't even know where her shoes are. You know, she'll like show up places, you know, with her pants on inside out. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and the thing is, I mean, not to get, I, I mean, and I also feel like then, especially for younger people, the male, because my husband and I did that for after our, you know, our last daughter sort of to ride it out through to the end. And it's sort of like, mm-hmm. he has to participate also. Like you can sort of know, Hey, this is the window and we can avoid today. Or if we're not, then this per- then the male has to have some level of control and no offense to 15, 16, right. 18 year old males. I don't know if that's so, so trustworthy. So, and, and then the idea of like, I'm going to take my 15 year old and you know, it's a for- it's a mini surgery. So it's a, it's so fascinating that those are our options. Yeah, I know. I think that it's, I, th- I think it's, I think it sucks. <laughs> I mean, and, 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 when you, and when you look at how much gets invested, so if you look at like what the pharmaceutical companies generally um, invest in research and development for, for different types of issues like depression and, and autoimmune disorders and cancer, they put a ton of their, their profits into R and D, but for uh, contraception, they put in like, it's like 1%. It's like nothing. Right. It's like the idea is, oh, well, it's solved. Like when, you know, like we've got that, it's, we've got the pill. It's fine. Yeah. We don't need to do anything else. And meanwhile, you know, it, it's like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like we have our backs up against the wall, especially with, with teenagers, because what the research shows yeah. is that, you know, when we look at some of the risks that come along with, um, with hormonal birth control use, especially when it comes to mental health, the ones who are asymmetrically burdened with those mental health side effects, including, you know, severe depression. And even now research is suggesting, you know, it can potentially put you on the path for developing major depressive disorder across the lifetime, even after you go off of it Mm. is, is is these teenage girls. And so, uh, you know, being a, a teenager who's sexually active, if you're a girl, I mean, you're really in a, in a bad spot where it's, we're in a bad spot. So I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to dive under the covers, like what would you do for your daughter? But let's say for you personally, if you could go back and you were 16 today and you had a, let's say you were in a relationship and you just said, Hey, I'm, I want to, you know, connect with this person on that level. We're going to have an active sex life. What would you do for yourself at that age? Right. And this, um, this is such an interesting question because, you know, and I have this conversation about with my, with my daughter as well. And it's like, so all knowing everything that I know now, yeah. um, I would go first the, with the, the IUD, that copper IUD without hormones. Me too. If that's, a, it, which is the cert, you know, essentially, like you said, it's like mini surgery, yeah. which it is. And if that didn't work, then I'd probably be on the pill. Yeah. All those risks aside, but just because the pregnancy prevention thing is so important. And, and that's where we are right now, societally. And that's nuts to me. And you would say, would you say that? And I, I, I'll share for me personally, I would do the same thing, whether it was, I was a teenager in my twenties or thirties and so forth, trying to prevent, you know, an un, unwanted pregnancy. Let's dive into the pill because it was, it surprises me like the health components. I was like, oh yeah, but just even some of the emotional 
or choices and things like that that you share really surprised me about how the pill impacts us. So maybe we can we can just get into unfortunately some of the risks you mentioned about depression and anxiety and how that can enhance that for uh, someone taking it. But maybe we can just talk about what the pill does because people go, oh, okay, it tricks you and sort of thinking you're pregnant, but really you know, maybe we could talk about the estrogen and progesterone and how that really what's happening. Right. So for a naturally cycling woman, what generally happens um, every month is, and, and we kind of know some version of this, but, um, or don't, you know, or we don't, or we don't. Right, right. Exactly. It's like, we, we like know the health class version of it, but the, the way that it all works is the first day that you get your period is the first day of your cycle. And during that time, your hormone levels are super low. So you have really low levels of estrogen and really low levels of progesterone. And when your levels of hormone are really low, that because your brain has hormone receptors, it like picks up on that. And it's like, oh, shoot, you know, we better start maturing some egg follicles. And so it sends a signal to the ovaries to start maturing egg follicles. And as that's happening, we get this really steady increase in estrogen levels. And so estrogen levels begin to climb. And then as an egg gets ready to get released, estrogen levels peak, the egg gets released, and then estrogen levels fall. And then progesterone levels start to increase Mm -hmm. because that empty egg follicle that just released that egg actually becomes a temporary endocrine structure that releases this hormone progesterone. And so then we're releasing progesterone. And if we don't get pregnant, what happens is levels fall and then we get our period and then the whole cycle starts all over again. But what the pill does is um, because when our body is releasing progesterone, it means an egg has already been released and that we're just waiting to see whether that egg is going to be fertilized and then implant itself. Our brain doesn't stimulate our ovaries. So it's like totally quiet and it leaves our ovaries alone and our body just sort of marches along to wait and see if it gets pregnant. And uh, the birth control pill mimics that state. And it does that by giving you a daily dose of a synthetic estrogen, which is at relatively low levels, and then synthetic progesterone, which is called a progestin, and that's at relatively higher levels. And that sort of hormonal message of high levels of progestin and lower levels of estrogen makes the body think that it's in the luteal phase of the cycle when, again, an egg has been released and the body is just like waiting to see whether or not it's going to, an egg is going to implant itself or not. So it's not really tricking our body into thinking it's pregnant. It's more tricking our body into thinking that, um, that we're in the second half of the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the thing about these synthetic hormones is the synthetic estrogen that's in the pill is actually a pretty decent biological match Um, It's pretty similar to what our body produces and like endogenously. Um, The progestin, which is that synthetic progesterone is not. Um, So most of the, most of the synthetic progesterone that's in commercially available birth control is synthesized actually from testosterone. And so it's sort of, they monkey with the molecules to make it able to stimulate Uh, progesterone receptors, which is why it does what it does, because our body reads it, uh, our progesterone receptors read the hormone, like, oh, okay, this is progesterone. But the problem is that it also will bind sometimes to testosterone receptors, which is why some women get skin breakouts, or they'll get hair growth in weird places, or their, their mood can change, or they can gain weight. And it can also, um, 
signal or, or stimulate uh, cortisol receptors, which are stress hormone receptors, um, which can lead us then into a, a state of like hyper stress because those are getting read too. So it's it's kind of a the progestins and the, the pill are kind of a funny. They're kind of a a Franken hormone, you know, where it's like kind of pieced together in a way that like does the job it's supposed to do, but then also does a bunch of other stuff that it shouldn't really do. Why are they able to get the one right? Is it less complicated? I, I, why are they able to get the estrogens right and not the other? Are they just have it? You know, that's like a really, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> and I think, and uh, you know, so uh, what, here's the different versions of the story I've heard. Okay. I've heard that, um, that uh, estrogen, like if you're going to synthesize estrogen from estrogen, that it's relatively easy to do because it's a really stable hormone and you can just like do it. And it, it, it's able to be digested and not, not absorbed. The, the, the thing I hear with uh, progesterone is that if you try to take it, um, it's not as bi- biologically stable and it has a hard time passing through the gut and actually getting absorbed. And so then they've created it in this other form that allows it to sort of transport, get digested and be able to do all of the things that it's supposed to do. And so, but I've had that, I've had that same question. I've also had the question of like, why can't we like make our own birth control using synthetic, like by, you know, bioidenticals, like, couldn't you do that <laughs> by just like taking progesterone and then like semestrogen? And I can't get a straight answer on like why we can't do that either. So is this, does this sometimes make you go, oh, I'm going to like, if you, if you had it your way and you could dream, you know, does this make you go, oh, well now I'm going to have to, I would like to now get involved into other aspects of this field. Like, is this sort of, because, you know, you said something that's so true. Sometimes when something's sort of good enough that it's like, okay, well, let's move on. And it could even be in, in, in that field because people are busy and they're lazy and whatever. Does this ever yeah. make you go, yeah, no, we can do better. And, you know, maybe I can help figure that out. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that all the time, like I, um, yes. Yeah. And especially with, um, with, with hormones, because, um, another thing I was thinking about, and this, this will get us in the weeds, so I'm not going to get too deeply into this, but you know, autoimmune diseases are something that women get at a rate of about a gazillion times greater than men. And there's this idea out there that one of the reasons for that is, you know, ancestrally. So throughout most of our evolutionary history, we spend a lot of our time pregnant. And so, and progesterone tamps down the immune system. It like does a really nice job of sort of modulating our immune system and putting us into an anti-inflammatory state. And so I, and so that one of the reasons that's been proposed that we have so much autoimmunity in women currently is because, you know, we don't spend so much time pregnant. And so our immune system isn't being sort of regulated in the way that it used to. And so I was thinking like, why don't we just put women who are at risk for autoimmune disorder on progesterone? Because progesterone is like not, you know, it doesn't tend to have a lot of these like sort of cancer and thrombotic effects that estrogens do. Like, what if we put women who are on, who are at risk for autoimmunity on progesterone for nine months at a time or whatever, for every other year or something, you know, during their peak reproductive years, if they're not trying to get pregnant to sort of help regulate their immune systems. And, and, um, 
what a, a cool idea. And so anyway, so yes, I always think about how does, stuff. How does that go over? And well, I'm curious too, the progesterone in the pill, is it different than if you were doing a synthetic? Like if for me, like I'm starting to explore the idea of doing some kind of hormone replacement, are those different? Yeah. So the, the, if you go on, um, if you do uh, like body identical hormones and do that progesterone, they will actually give you progesterone. Oh. Because um, now they're able to get it in a pill. And, and why we haven't switched that from what's in these progestins in the pill, I don't know. And there's some sort of, um, you know, I don't know how much of it's like just conspiracy theory, sort of, <laughs> you know, people, but, but there's also truths to some of that stuff is that you can't patent it. Oh, you mean, um, oh, yeah. That, okay. <laughs> and that these progestins are patented. And, um, and the drug companies and the drug companies make a lot of money from their specific progestin. Yeah. That would really surprise me if they were interested in only doing things that they made money. It would really surprise me. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Well, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Now, so you talk about when the you know, in that second phase, let's say naturally you'd be more quiet, your libido would be down because your body's in this wait and see sort of holding pattern for that period of time. So this sort of becomes a permanent state in a, in a, in a different way when we're on these chemical uh, birth controls. And, and what I love that I learned is that it impacts our sex drive, our relationships, maybe even who we're attracted to partner choices, all these things. Talk, talk to me about that. Yeah. So there has been research now for a really long time. I won't, I won't say a couple of decades now showing that when estrogen rises across the cycle, because that's something that is associated with, you know, a, a time in your cycle when conception is possible, that women experience an increase in sexual desire. Um, they tend to be more, more flirtatious they smell better to men. They walk sexier. Women essentially are like doing, you know, sort of pulling out all the stops when it comes to um, things related to um, attracting partners and then having sex. So essentially setting the stage for sex and pregnancy. And this research also finds that uh, during this phase in the cycle, when estrogen is high, that women also tend to really emphasize in their sort of like who they're attracted to qualities that um, are, are believed to be linked to sort of like what we call like good genes. So like testosterone markers in men. So cues to things like masculinity. So for example, having a masculinized face, like a deep voice, broad shoulders, behavioral masculinity, which is like social dominance and that sort of thing. Um, and all of these things are um, believed to be linked to uh, male immune function and uh, good health, good genes. So more recently, researchers have asked then, you know, given all of this research that's found that when women are at a time in the cycle when estrogen is high, that they have more sexual desire, they have more sex, they have a greater preference for masculine male faces, voices, masculinized male behavior, and and the scent of genetically compatible partners. Researchers then said, well, what happens with women on the birth control pill, because when you have women on the pill, you suppress that. So you never get that estrogenic, you know, that rise in estrogen that occurs across the cycle. And instead you're creating this state where women are perpetually in a state of progestin dominance. 
And, uh, and what the research finds is that lo and behold, um, women who are on hormonal birth control have um, generally less sexual desire than um, women who are naturally cycling, that they don't experience these cyclical changes in their sexiness to men, and that they don't experience any of these sorts of um, little sexiness. We don't get any of those sexiness boosts that naturally cycling women get during the estrogenic phase of the cycle, but also that women um, tend to have a preference for less masculinized male faces voices and behavior, and they don't seem to be able to discriminate the scent of genetically compatible versus incompatible partners in the way that naturally cycling women can when they're at a point in the cycle when estrogen is dominant. Okay. Now, Sarah. Yes. We live in a time that Mm -hmm. people somehow want to run away from or ignore biology chemistry, hormones. Mm -hmm. So for you as somebody who studies this and is so intimate with these details, I'm curious when you go someplace and share this information, I feel like our world that we live in, it's like we're trying so hard to separate from our biology that in ways we're always, I don't want to say frustrated, but it's like we're missing so many targets because we're not putting this into the conversation. We're not acknowledging it. And that these are drivers. Like we think that we're so smart and we're so, you know, on top of it, but we, it's like the stuff is driving us that is, we don't see. And I'm just curious for you living in this world do you go at that with a sledgehammer? Do you just do you just sort of try to drop off the facts and be like, well, maybe they'll pick it up? I mean, what do you? Because it for me, it's like, hey, the more I can try to understand myself on all levels, whether it's spiritually, you know, emotionally, biologically, I feel like it gives me better tools to arrive at places that I'm trying to get to. That it just, yeah, you know, they're just insights to help guide me. I'm curious how you, as somebody who's like, huh, okay, um, you know, steeped in this information, you know, how you, how you drop that off. You know, I think that it is like culturally, we, I totally agree and recognize what you're saying. I think that we're at this place where we try to um, get away from our biology and we try to talk about the limitations of things, even like sex, you know, for example, like biological sex and so on. But I think that it's like critically important to understand that biological processes matter, you know, and even though the social stuff also matters that recognizing ultimately like what some of the biological processes are that contribute to the way that we feel and the way that we experience the world and and motivational states, um, that it's ultimately incredibly empowering and that you can hold, like, I think that we're, you know, people tend to underestimate our, and and I think that for good reason in a lot of ways, because I mean, you know, there's so much like it's this or that, or you're, you know, you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, or it's this or it's that, and everything's like a team sport. And it's like, I think that we need to get comfortable holding multiple truths in our hands. And that being that, you know, biology really matters. And, um, and, and it really, it affects who you are, you know, and ultimately understanding yourself means respecting that these processes are going on, but then also saying, but, you know, the, the socially constructed stuff matter, spirituality, for example, that matters too. And that like, you can say that biology matters without having it become prescriptive. 
You know, so for example, saying that, you know, one thing I talk about in my book is that, you know, women's brains are different than men's brains. And, um, and that's true. And if you are a biological female, you come into the world with a certain set of biological predispositions on average, right. That tend to make women one way and, you know, men another way. Um, but that by no, that doesn't mean that all women are going to fall neatly into this package of what it means to be a biological female. And it also doesn't mean that if you don't identify as a, as a female, even though you're a biological female, that that's somehow weird and problematic and, and not consistent with science because everything in nature is natural, you know? So you can't, and um, so I, I think that we need to, you know, the way I always look at it is um, it's absolutely like it's absolutely important to address this stuff mm-hmm. um, because it's uh, whether we want to whether we want it to be true or not it's like part of it's part of who we are and to try to sort of bury it you know under a bushel so that way you know it, it, it's not going to do us any good no it's going to make us miserable. And that's the thing for me. It's just a tool. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, you can do whatever you want with the information, but what, at least if you have it, even just being female and understanding, um, I, you know, I, I know Elisa Vitti, it's like, hey, there are times of the month that you might want to eat 250 more calories because you'll be like, what's wrong with me? Why is it right around my period? I'm always wanting to eat. It's like, hey, this is actually normal. Um, I, I think the same for nutrition. We're, we're, we're hardwired to get it when we can and shove it in our mouth because biologically, if we, you know, days gone by, if we didn't have access to it, get it when you can. So now that we know that when I have the impulse, I don't have to be like, what's wrong with me? I can go, oh, I get it. This is a misdirected environment connecting with my biology. Right. What do I, like, what do I want to do? What choices do I want to make that are going to, that are going to serve me. And I, and I found that so interesting how much we're trying to push against it rather than going, let me understand. So then I can navigate whatever road you're on. Right. No, I think that you're so, I think you're so right about that. And I think that, you know, especially like when we talk about women's hormones, like I think about things like PMS, for example, and the sort of greater sensitivity because our senses are in fact heightened in when we're under the spell of progesterone and it kind of turns up the volume on our sensory information and things become very like sounds that wouldn't bother us or smells that wouldn't bother us at other times in the cycle all of a sudden do. And it's like, well, we can pretend that that isn't happening or we can say like, Ooh, like, (laughs) yeah, like I know that this is normally okay for me, but right now, you know, it's not. And like, we feel totally okay saying like, oh, you know, I'm sorry I snapped at you yesterday. I was tired or I was, I was hungry, but it's like, it's, it's problematic to say I, I, it's the week before my period. I mean, like we become biologically different and understanding it makes it a lot better. I mean, I know in my own relationship, like, you know, my partner attracts my cycle and he is much happier. Because of it. Yeah. <laughs> because He's like, ooh, you know, normally I would feel bad about mm. this, but it's day, you know, it's day 22. Yeah. And so. No, I can remember my husband was like, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty mellow overall, but he's like uh, something, we were getting ready to do something with work and there was the people that we work with outside doing something, right? And he's like, can you explain to me why? I go, I'm not explaining anything. Like, I don't know what they're doing and I'm not here to explain it. And that is so not like me. You should be like, well, let me find out. And then I can, you know, navigate right. <laughs> whatever hormone needed the, the, you know, the, uh, 
was out the door. And I was like, no, yeah, no, I'm not explaining one thing. And I could see him be like, oh, you know. <laughs> and I, I just, that's why I want to encourage people to understand not to try to bend it or will it to something else. Because um, I don't know, it just, it seems futile. It does. And I mean, honestly, so like, you know, I think about, so one of the things I talk about in my book in, um, and this is mostly just talking about in a natural cycle where, you know, during the estrogenic phase of the cycle, for example, the research finds that women tend to zero in on cues to testosterone and, you know, and then during the progestogenic phase of the cycle that we tend to be a little bit less interested in that. And we're more interested in, you know, things like provisioning ability and, and care and that sort of thing. Um, I can think, you know, if you are a woman in a relationship with a man and at, you know, some points in the cycle, you're like, my partner is just not for me, where you can step back and say, there's probably not a relationship problem here. I'm probably just having one of those days. And this is normal. And I don't need to just, you know, blow up my relationship. Instead, I am, this is just part of who I am. And I'm going to feel very differently in a couple of days. Yep. And we will. And, um, and I think understanding all of that is so valuable. Yeah. And I think it's also a part of some level of kind of self-awareness and maturity that I think we're responsible to learn as we go through life and become adults. And um, that was the other thing I really appreciated that uh, Elise, Elisa Vitti put, like she'll say, you can put the app on your partner's phone so they also know what's going on, like you said. And I, I, and I think if you have a male partner, one thing I've really talked about a lot is masculine wisdom. And part of that is they intuitively start to understand all of this, even if they can't verbalize it, they're like, oh yeah, okay, I know where we're at. And so I think that is also helpful. This podcast is brought to you by June Shine. Now, a lot of you know that I'm not a big drinker, but occasionally I do really enjoy June Shine. I was introduced to it from my friend Becky and then my friend Whitney Cummings. I love the fact that it has no added sugar. And unlike a lot of traditional canned cocktails, they typically can have up to 20 grams of sugar, tons of calories, and not really great liquor. So they're getting creative. They've got tequila, the margarita pack for vodka fans, passion fruit vodka soda, or the classic vodka mule, Mai Tais. They've got a mix pack. And the way I do it at my house is I might have one maybe once a month, but it's when my friends come over. Now I have something to offer them that I feel good about giving them, but I know that they're really going to enjoy. It's so delicious and it is a better for you alcohol. It's completely transparent, every ingredient that they put in their products. There's no sneakiness and things that you can't pronounce inside the cans. You know, with Juneshine, you've got about six grams of sugar in the margarita mix and it's zero added sugar. It's things from orange and lime juice and a little bit of sea salt, things like that. And they are carbon neutral through their partnership with Climate Neutral, so conscientious. They donate 1% of all sales to environmental nonprofits. Their brewery is powered by 100% renewable energy. They have a really fun and generous and easy offer for you today. So Juneshine can be found over 10,000 stores across the country. It's available at all retailers you're already visiting. You're already going to groceries that have alcohol like Whole Foods, Target, Ralph's, Vons, Albertsons, Kroger's, Wegmans, Total Wine, BevMo, Safeway, and more. So they've worked out a special offer for our listeners. At 
any store, you can buy one June Chime package and get the second for only a penny. So you can go to any store and buy one June Chime package and get the second for only a penny. So that's a 12 to $20 savings in value, depending on where you shop. And I recommend trying to get one of their best-selling variety packs. It's really a great way to try all their flavors and you've got different varieties to share with your friends and family. But then what you do is you go to juneshine.com slash Gabby. You text them a photo of your receipt and they'll Venmo you immediately. It's really that easy. So juneshine, J-U-N-E-S-H-I-N-E.com slash Gabby. The Gabby Reese Show is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has a really special offer for you today and a great service. Going through life, sometimes it's hard. And it's so nice to have somebody who is qualified to talk to. I love getting an outside person to just help me navigate or make suggestions to really help me get new tools to work things out. I personally really benefited a lot from therapies, especially when my kids turned out to be teenagers. In that time, I really felt like, hey, I'm in over my head and I need direction. I'm interested in some new ideas and some new tools to bring into that. And I think people are busy. I think these last few years have been extra hard where we sort of have this unknown kind of looming stress that is impacting a lot of people. And so if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So really taking away any of those pressure points that make it where it's just like not going to happen. And all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. They have a wonderful offer for you today. So if you want to find more balance with BetterHelp, just visit betterhelp.com slash GR today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash GR. This podcast is brought to you by Neurohacker. I've been taking other products from Neurohacker for months and months, like Qualia Mind, my focus and just mental clarity was unbelievable. And then I started taking Qualia Senolytic. Just like you, I'm trying to do my best, right? Through food and sleep and moving my body and managing stress and trying to be there for my family and all these things. Well, I feel like for me that when I find something that is science-backed that can support me in whichever way, whether it's mentally or physically, I'm all for it especially when it's science-backed. So Neurohacker has packed seven of the most science-backed senolytic ingredients into one formula called Qualia Senolytic. And what I love about this product, you can just take it two days a month. So for me, it was very fast and noticeable benefits and I felt better. And the reason is, is that there's something called senescent cells or zombie cells. And these are old worn out cells that no longer serve a useful function for your health. They waste your energy and nutritional resources. And they tend to accumulate in our bodies as we age. And there's sort of nothing you can do about that, right? No matter how early you get to bed or how many vegetables you eat. So this can lead to aches and slow workout recoveries, which I really have felt the difference. And not only that, my mental and physical energy has gone way up. The other thing about these thoughtful products is they are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free. And again, these ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. And they have a backed by a hundred day guarantee. So you can try the product for almost three months with no financial risk. And then you can decide for yourself. 
If you are in your late 20s or older, adding qualia senolytic to your diet can play a really crucial role in combating negative aging symptoms. All you have to do is go to neurohacker.com slash Gabby Reese, one word, for up to 50% off qualia senolytic. And as a listener of the Gabby Reese Show, use the code Gabby Reese at checkout for an extra 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com slash Gabby Reese to try qualia senolytic with the code Gabby Reese. Something you talked about in your book that was really interesting to me is, so two groups, they, 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 let's say they enter a long-term commitment, whether that's marriage or just an agreement, like, hey, we're maybe going to start a family. One group's not on the pill. One group is on the pill. They go off the pill. And the group that, that wasn't on the pill entering into the relationship, I believe I'm getting this right, you talk about they actually continue to have, it seems, more sex with their partner. Yeah. So here's what, here's what they find. And so, you know, as we were talking about this idea that uh, the hormones in our birth control may have an impact on who we're attracted to, mm-hmm. of course, begs the question of what happens if you choose a partner under one set of hormonal influences, and then you did either, you know, discontinue, if you were on the, you chose your partner on the pill and then you go off of it, like what happens? Or if you chose your partner when you're off the pill and then you go on, what happens? And, uh, and so researchers have begun to investigate this, um, investigate this question. And what they found is that for women who chose their partners when they were on the pill and then go off of the pill, that there is a change in the degree of sexual attraction and the amount of sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction that they have with their partner. But whether it becomes more positive or more negative depends on how sexy their partner is. And so they find that women who were, I know it's just like isn't the worst thing. It's like, isn't it great? We, it's like, make me say we females are too, are also shallow. You see that? <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. It's like, I'm like, yeah, but it's evolutionary. So, you know, but no. So uh, what they found is that if you were a woman and you, uh, while you were um, on the pill, you just so happened to choose somebody who's a sexy partner that, um, that when you go off the pill, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I have this really sexy partner and their, their sexual attraction to their partner increases their uh, sexual desire increases and their um, relationship satisfaction also increases. And, but for women who are, who chose a less sexy partner, when they go off the pill, then it's the opposite happens. So they report less attraction to their partner. They're having less sex and they're less sexually satisfied and relationship satisfaction decreases. And so the idea here is that when we're naturally cycling, essentially estrogen really increases our attunement to compatibility and like having like somebody that you're really compatible with that sexiness and the idea that the the hormones in the pill because they're suppressing estrogen and keeping it really low that it sort of deadens or dampens our attunement to sexiness and instead makes us really zeroed in on sort of the the tangibles right like does this person have a good job does this person you know are they going to be a good provider And so when you take a naturally cycling woman who's kind of cycling in between, you know, this estrogen state and this progesterone state, what you'll generally find is somebody who's made a a trade-off. 
right? Where they're like somebody who's sexy and is going to be a good provider and sort of has enough of both things where they feel pretty good about, you know, about sex and they feel pretty good about the provisioning. With women who are on the pill, where you're constantly keeping them in this state, if it just so happens that they sort of accidentally chose somebody that they, you know, are going to, that they're naturally cycling version of themselves and find really sexy, then they're like, they go off the pill and they're like, oh my gosh, like, because they're paying attention to that stuff all of a sudden. And it's like, yeah. But for women who are paying attention to all that stuff, and it seems like they might not have chosen a great fit, it's like, oof, no. And so what you see is that for some women, when they discontinue hormonal birth control, is that they will get either an increase in sexual desire and attraction to their partner, or they'll get a decrease in sexual desire and attraction to their partner. And of course, in some cases, you get no, you know, you get no effects at all. Right. It's so very idiosyncratic. Um, and just like, you know, I guess all things in life, but certainly with this. If I was listening to this and I was a man, which a big part of my audience is, is male, yeah. I would think, okay, so time out. Our world is telling us that masculinity is not good. And, you know, being sensitive, which those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, but let's just say that it's, it, it again, because we live in this sort of split world yeah, yeah. that I think that there's something really interesting. Cause I, I have a very masculine partner who is also a, a very, a good provider, a good father, sensitive, a good communicator, whatever. But I'm not going to lie. There have been times I have sat across from Laird and thought, and actually maybe even joked, but was probably meant it was like, Today you're just lucky. I enjoy looking at you. You know what I mean? Um, because right, I totally yeah, yeah. believe in reverse. Um, I joke around like I jo- about being reverse objectification. You know, because I think it's more fun, especially yeah, yeah, yeah. as a female. When you you know maybe you go through life, you learn to have a little fun with all of it instead of because yeah. maybe when you get into your own whatever power, I don't even know what that word means. Just sense of self, who you are. I think you can roll with some of these truths a little easier. They don't freak you out as much because you can still, you still are in, in charge of yourself. This doesn't change like right. whether my cycle's this way or that way. It doesn't change the fact that I'm still in charge of myself and have power to make choices, whether it's to be in this relationship, to wear that dress, whatever it is. Right. But I, I think it's important that at least in our world, it's yes, of we, we don't want to have men in charge who are going to take advantage and abuse their power or their size or their strength for sure. And I don't actually think that's true masculinity. I think that's something else. I think that's an extension of that. Is it misogyny or something else? I think real masculinity is so important because when women maybe come out of certain things, they might realize that the people that they actually want to have sex with have traits of masculinity mm-hmm. because I'm just talking yeah. about selfishly for your own satisfaction. It's like, don't kill masculinity. No, I know. I like, I'm, yeah, no, I, I, so I, this is, I could go on a rant about this, but I very much, um, I'm, I completely agree with you on that. And I think that, um, true masculinity is, um, I mean, it's essentially, it's like leadership and, um, and the ability, you know, and uh, yeah, leadership is what I always think of with that. And that's something that attracts women and it doesn't need to be violent because women are drawn to it. No, you know, where you get the aggression and the sort of hostility toward women that tends to be, you know, you see a lot of that with, I have a colleague who 
does research on incels. Oh, you know, these are these guys who aren't having sex and yeah, and they're they're really misogynistic and don't like women and all these other things, but it's because they're not attracting women. And, um, and it's because they, they lack the, they lack that, I don't know, sort of, uh, yeah, actual, the true masculinity, which is compassion, leadership, um, you know, having some social facility, but yeah, I do think it is, um, unfortunate and, and I, it, it was such an interesting conversation to have because I, I think it's unfortunate that we've created, we're creating a generation of men that nobody will want to have sex. With. No, I know. And that makes it, it's, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, it's like, it's, 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 you know, I, um, I, I also have a masculine partner Mm -hmm. and he's very, you know, um, and, and a a great, great communicator, great father, all of these other things, but also is like, has a very clear sense of leadership and, um, and, you know, sort of taking charge. And I like that. And I find that very attractive and, um, and most women do. And, you know, and the idea that we've created this conversation around, you know, sort of like a masculinity equals bad equals this, then creates this idea that men need to be, you know, um, you know, may I touch your hair? You know, it's like if somebody asked me no. that, I'd be like, no. No, it's over. It's over. <laughs> it's over. I gave you the cue. And then I I would like you to, you know, and I think this, even this idea of protectiveness, right? Like who is, who protects it's, it's a masculine trait. And it doesn't mean you don't house masculinity as I do, because clearly you do. So I, I think I just really don't want to drop the ball as women. And cause I actually, I want to do it for my daughters and other young women, Mm -hmm. because sometimes they don't know. And it's sort of like, right. no, we want, we need to cultivate and encourage men to be the right kind of masculine. And it comes down to, right. so that they will have people like you're saying that they, so selfishly, it could be like, so that you have someone that you're, you actually want to be with, you know, my dad yeah. always jokes with me. He's like, oh, if I changed in all the ways that you thought you wanted to change me early on, then you wouldn't want to be with me. And that's, probably true. Probably true. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. So I, I, I want to use, the, totally. you know, these conversations to also, you and I can win as women and men don't have to lose. I don't think it's an either or. And, and also getting women to really be in touch with, if we change it all these ways, you're not going to get what you want. And we're already seeing that with dating apps or if that's what they are. I don't know if they're dating apps, they're sort of hookup apps. It's like, we're not going to win there you know, all of these things that we're trying to model, which, which leads me a little bit to, you know, testosterone, you know, we, the countdown book, uh, you know, Dr. Swan talking about how, okay, clearly men, whether it's, you know, phthalates and things in the environment or just a myriad of reasons why I think it's a soup, why, you know, men's testosterone is dropping, but maybe I'm curious if we're not, in a place where like if women are on all these chemical uh, birth control, do you also think because we're not having these signals that it's all, cause there's no reason then, right. For them to be like, I'm here, let's fight, let's go. I'm going to compete for a mate. Do you think that this could possibly be impacting uh, the level of men's testosterone or you think it's completely separate? No, I think it absolutely could. So there has been research, I mean, that, in, that shows that, Attractive women 
ovulating women and ovulating women, you know, having these releasing estrogens, that these things change men's testosterone levels. So if men see a beautiful woman or if men smell the t-shirt that's been worn by a woman at high fertility, so an estrogen is high, um, that men's testosterone levels increase. And so the idea that we have so many women on hormonal birth control where they're not releasing these signals of high fertility, then as you said, I mean, it's like men's bodies respond very dynamically to mating opportunities and, and fertility. And the idea that there aren't as many cues like that in the environment, I mean, could absolutely be a contributor to lower levels of testosterone in men because men respond to like opportunities to procreate by producing testosterone. And because of that, they're sensitive to cues of fertility. And when you're missing all of those cues, because women's fertility is, is being kept suppressed, it would be absolutely not surprising to me to find that that's a contributing factor to lower levels of testosterone. Where can we, where can we get better information? And are you hopeful that, is there anything sort of on the horizon you think, that, oh, that looks interesting? Because it, like you said, it almost feels this feels like a catch 22, like we need the, we don't want a bunch of unwanted pregnancy. You know, if if I want to pursue a career, uh, then I should have the right to be able to figure out the way to have a personal and intimate sex life and then pursue being the CEO and, you know, not have a a child at a, at a time that I'm, I'm not prepared for, you know, this is what, what do you, what do you see as the best case scenario um, as far as who's talking about it and, you know, you're, we're saying, okay, the IUD seems on a health side, the best option. Is there something coming that feels really interesting to you? Yeah. So what I'm most excited about, and, you know, it's in very, very early stages, but there is the, some research that's been done using rodent models where they're, they have found a way to block this. It's some minor, like, derivative of like vitamin A or something that seems to be only used in sperm production. Mm. And so they're continuing to test to make sure that the body doesn't use this also for other important things, but, um, they're finding a way to block, they've found a way to block this in mice. So essentially making it where the body can't read this, the message presented by this derivative of vitamin A. And so it prevents sperm production. And so men, it's not like you're blocking because they, they've had versions of male birth control that they keep trying to, it's so dumb, where it keeps men's testosterone levels so low that they don't produce sperm. But it's like, all that's doing is shifting the problem from women to men. Right. It's just like, it's so dumb. And what man do you know is going to be like, hey, I like that sounds great. Yeah. And then it's like, it's sort of like uh, certain antidepressants or certain medications where it's like, great. And now you're completely disinterested anyway. So- yeah. I mean, yeah. That, see, this is the other interesting part for me is uh, I don't know, and I know there's conscientious men out there, but I still think forever and all time, the onus is going to be on the female because we have the most to risk and lose because the biological responsibilities on us, if they forget their pill, I put that in quotes, oh, well, you know, yeah. sorry, sweetie, I knocked you up. Right. So right. I still think it's like we we need to solve it for the females because we're going to be the diligent stewards. And if people say things like that's not fair, um, you know, that's biology's <laughs> not fair. Well, right. Exactly. I mean, it's like, we have yeah, no choice. Come on, you know, it's like, 
it's like you don't like it. Like, like I don't like that I'd be the one who gets pregnant from sex, and yet, alas, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's I, I, I yell to the gods. It's not fair. It's like, yeah, okay. And and you know, the flip side of that is like every really brutal job, for the most part, is done by guys. So you know, there's a lot of not fair in the universe. But so for so we've got the yeah. derivative of vitamin A. Is there anything yeah. else showing up for for women? Right. Yeah. You know, no, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the short yeah. story of it. Like, the short version is no. And I will say this, if this like, you know, vitamin A derivative or whatever that prevents sperm production, if it actually works, like I'll say that this works and it does prevent sperm production and it doesn't cause any side effects because it doesn't actually seem to do anything else in the body. Like, let's say that that's true. Um, I think that'll be a big step in the right direction for long-term monogamous relationships, right? Where if you're like with a partner, mm -hmm. that will work. But again, like you said, I think ultimately, especially for women who are um, who are who are having more casual relationships or in early stages of sexual relationships, um, the onus is always going to be on women. Um, I, I think you know, wouldn't it be great if there was a vitamin A derivative that prevented egg production? But if that happened, the problem, like. Egg production is what causes estrogen to get released. And then estrogen being released and having that empty egg follicle is what causes progesterone to be released. And so, um, you know, it's also, you know, I've wondered if there, you know, could there be some sort of, and this is just me thinking crazy off the cuff, but I think that this is what we need to do is have people in a room, you know, saying like, here's this crazy thought, but, you know, I think about um, tubal ligation is great, right? Where you release an egg and then it just, kind of floats out into the body. Like, is there a way that we can do that more temporarily? Cause that's a more permanent procedure than a vas, you know, a vasectomy for men, you know, it's like they can reverse that a tubal ligation is not the same for women. And, but I'm wondering, could there be some sort of a little, almost like a, almost like in a pinball machine where like, you know, like a little thing that puts it somewhere else right. where we could put in a little shunt or something to have it go out, but then you just remove the shunt when it's time to, or, you know, something like that. I mean, I just have no idea, but, um, it, and that's why it's trickier for women than men because women's hormone production depends on actually having released an egg. And so it makes it harder for, for us to find pregnancy prevention, you know, that's going to end up not screwing up our hormones. And, um, but, but something like that, I think is like, we need some out of the box thinking for women. Let's just remind people. So we, we talk about the pill, we talk about IUD is sort of the pill. And again, I'm not, I, I'm not interested in getting a bunch of emotion around it, but are, are we sort of in, on some thought that like, it's actually in the long term probably the most, it's one of the worst. Well, I mean, do you mean like one of the worst compared to what? Like for our health, for our emotional well-being, for, you know, mm -hmm. it, it just feels. But, do you, but when you say that it's the worst, do you mean like compared birth, to. Birth control yeah. itself. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Chemical birth control. Are we saying the pill is really ranks up there is one of the hardest on us? Hardest on us, I would say is actually probably, um, at least according to the research, that hormonal shot. Oh, the shot um, is worse. Yeah, yeah, that one's worse. The they still um, do that. The yeah, they do. Wow. And in fact, and, and what's really sad is a place where they do it a lot is the developing world because they're trying to regulate fertility and do it cheaply. Yeah. And 
Yeah, the, that progestin only pill that they just made available over the counter is also really bad psychologically. Um, it's probably got the worst side effect profile. Um, but the reason that they allowed that one to be OTC is because it doesn't have estrogen in it. But the problem is because estrogen is the thing that causes all the heart attacks and everything. And so you have to be careful with it. Mm-hmm. But estrogen in the pill is what allows women to feel most normal. And the only reason that they actually have es- like the estrogen in most birth control pills isn't because it does anything with pregnancy prevention. It just allows women to feel better. I see. And um, yeah. And so when you give women this like progestin, anything that's just progestin without um, estrogen is usually actually the worst. And when we look at like side effect profiles of different types of hormonal birth control, the ones that tend to actually be the best are the combination hormonal contraceptive pills. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, uh, and the, and the hormonal IUD is kind of a funky one because it is, um, especially for young adolescent women who, uh, are still developing, it seems to be really bad with side effects initially. So here's the thing about the hormonal IUD and that's that it suppresses your hormones, just like all the other things do, because again, it's, you're getting this, this message of this synthetic progestin, which is telling your brain, like, don't stimulate the ovaries. So don't, you you don't ovulate, but that IUD, because it releases really low levels of hormone, um, the levels are so unnaturally low that it makes a lot of women feel completely crazy because uh, being in a really low hormone state isn't normal for women. Like the idea that, I mean, we're hormonal and, um, keeping really low levels of hormones makes us feel cuckoo nuts. Um, but what happens because the levels are so low is generally after women have been on it for a while, like usually more than a year or so, they'll start ovulating again. And then they feel great because they're ovulating. Right. And so they're creating hormones and they feel like themselves again. So the hormonal IUD is actually one of the better ones after you start ovulating again, but that can take up to a year. Yeah. It can take, and it's for some women, they never ovulate when they're on it. And so it's, it's, you mean for it's like really years messy. and years and tough. years, they don't ovulate. They don't ovulate for years and years. Cause what they, what they find is that the first, within the first year of use, 60% of women or no, 80% of women are not ovulating in that first year. By the fifth year, 80% of women are ovulating. And so there's all this, you know, time. And so some women, most women who are on the IUD, who love it, they've been on it a while and now they're ovulating again. And they're like, Oh, I feel like myself. It's great. I don't have any side effects. And it's because they're making hormones again. And so they feel like themselves and they feel good. Um, but for women who are initially on it and their bodies aren't ovulating yet, they feel terrible. Yeah. And, um, and so that one's a messy one. And the, yeah, all the progestin only stuff is just not, I would not recommend it for anybody unless, you know, they have absolutely no other choices because, you know, like women, for example, who are like 40 and smokers and overweight and have all these issues that are putting them at risk for heart disease, being on something with estrogen isn't a good idea. But um, for all the rest of us, like I would say, take a combat, if you're going to be on hormonal birth control, take, take a combination product. It's going to make you feel a hundred times better than something with only progestin. Now, is there, have you heard anything of like, let's say someone goes, Hey, I've, I've got to take something. I'm, I'm going to take a pill. I'll take the pill. Have you, mm-hmm. is there any, have you heard of anyone using other things, supplements, some other mm-hmm. kind of more holistic uh, practice that offsets any of the you know negative impacts of these uh, chemical birth controls. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you can, cause you do get certain types of uh, nutritional deficiencies that can be created from using hormonal birth control. Um, and gosh, I wish I remembered what they all are off the top of my head, but it's like it's certain B vitamins. And I think that vitamin D becomes more problematic when you're on the pill too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really great, um, if you read the, the, um, did you ever talk to Lara Bryden who wrote the hormone repair manual? No. And Jolene Brighton talks a lot about it and beyond the pill um, about some of these nutritional deficiencies. Um, Taking some of the vitamins that are recommended by those authors and those books, I think, can be really helpful. Um, The one uh, vitamin that I recommend this for everybody, whether you're naturally cycling or or on the pill, but um, magnesium is just like a superhero for women. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, what, and, what does it do? Um, like seventy-two I, I, processes in the body, or something insane like that. I don't. Yeah, yeah. They have an entire. They have an entire textbook like about the effects of magnesium on the brain because it's like does so many different things. It, it's such a powerful, um, such a powerful vitamin. Um, it kind of changed my life a little bit when I started using it because I'm, I'm not a good sleeper and I'm and I'm a stress. I'm a stress monger, and so like that like totally levels me out in a way that nothing had. Do you, is it, do you take a certain kind of magnesium, what a different one for sleep or a different one? Like, you know how there's, I don't know how many types of magnesium are there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I take magnesium. I think it's like magnesium citrate. Mm-hmm. It's like the one that's supposed to be better absorbed in the body. But like, cause people are always like, well, which one do you, I'm like, nothing fancy. I ordered it on Amazon. Yeah. And it really, <laughs> you felt it really made a difference for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Especially with my, with PMS, it took a couple of months. Cause I get, I get pretty nuclear PMS and, um, do, do we know besides magnesium, um, let's say someone's has a decent exercise life and has reasonable diet, nothing crazy. Some people just get hit harder with their PMS. Do you, besides magnesium, are there other, I know fish oil that shows up pretty good, right. To support yeah. menstrual cycles. Yeah. Zinc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zinc, um, B vitamins. So that's also really helpful. And then, um, and then making sure that you're getting enough iodine. iodine. Interestingly, I always enough. forget about iodine, but yet it comes up a lot. Yeah, I know. Well, it's funny because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a really clean eater. And because of that, I don't eat a lot, you know, I don't get a lot of sodium from, cause I prepare everything. And, um, and so I, I started taking, um, I started taking iodine cause I realized that I almost never have regular salt and the stuff I use when I cook isn't iodized. It's like sea salt. Right. Yeah. You do the good stuff. Like, you, yeah. Yeah. Do you have uh, and I'm just curious as a parent now, cause I think everyone's navigating this. Do you have certain practices that you set up that help? Uh, with your kids, um, I mean, obviously eating at home and they're eating those foods that you're eating, but do, have you figured out the navigation of getting your kids or at least encouraging them to eat, uh, you know, better? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so this, um, this, well, no, it's such a topic cause I have teenagers yeah. <laughs> and, um, and when they were little, I mean, my, and my mom always laughs about this cause my daughter was like, I want a broccoli treat. And my mom is like, <laughs> Who is this child? Um, because I mean, we just we ate so clean, and um, and she wasn't exposed to any of the you know the sort of trash. And then when she started at school and had more exposure mm-hmm. to all of the trashy food, 
it's been really hard, um, especially now that they're teens, to get them to eat the healthy things. Now I feed them the, you know, like, so the meals that we have at home and we make a big practice of having family dinner. And so unless somebody's got something where we, but it's like, we sit down together and we eat as a family and we all eat the same thing. You know, it's not like this person is getting that. And I make this, that I've, I've never done like subscribed to that model. It was always like, no, you're going to eat what I eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and what all of us eat. And, um, and because of that, they'll eat, I mean, they're good eaters. Like, so for example, my, they will eat anything. They'll, they eat arugula and they eat Brussels sprouts and they eat beets and they, I mean, they eat everything, but they also are eating a bunch of trash, you know, <laughs> that, that they buy, you know, it's like, they'll go out with their friends and, you know, get all kinds of trash food. And the thing I am trying to keep in mind is that they're getting the good stuff and now they have, and they have a taste for the good stuff, like, like good food, you know, healthy and nutritious food. And at some point they're going to start to make the connection. And I try to like emphasize that, like, how does your body feel now, you know, that you ate two pizzas at school? And you're smart. That's the thing is I think you're doing it because you can't fight it. I love, you know, parents like, I'm not going to be in your pocket. You know, it's like you're off into the world. I really appreciate that point of view of like, hey, I'm going to provide a great template. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to model it. But I, I appreciate also the kind of faith of knowing they get through this and then they'll circle back. I've seen it with my older children, certainly, that they all circle back. And my favorite is like, that's how they cook. That's how they live. And, and just to not, because I think people get really freaked out. And I'm like, you can't get freaked out. Everybody should eat weird chips for a period of time and do weird things so they know why they don't do that for themselves. Yeah, no, I, I, you just like gave me like so much hope because that's what I've been hoping for because my oldest is 16 and she's like, re- I mean, I feel like she's going off the back of the boat right now with her because she's just like totally you know, with chips and oh, yeah. whatever. What are they like, talkies? What are those weird ones? Hello, talkies. Oh, yeah, 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 talkies. And they're a weird oh. color, you know, like what color is yeah. that? No, I, I, yeah, no, it's it'll be, it'll be yeah. great because uh, she'll have the tools, she'll know. And um, I think that's what life is. And, and that's their language. At 16, you're not going out and having a beer with your friends. You're going out and eating weird chips and doing weird food. You know, yeah. that's part of the, the, their their culture, but I was just curious because I can tell you're very healthy, and um, I'm also interested in how you can have a, you know, it's like how you're managing it all, right? You're in a partnership, you have children, you're producing, you know, work and doing things that are hard. Do you have any practices that really help you manage kind of all of it? Because because it is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. You know, it is a lot. I think as um, as women you know, on the one hand, like one of the great things about the time that we live in is that we have an opportunity to do so many things, but it's also created this sort of culture where we're expected to be both women and men, you know? So it's like all of us feel like we have to live two lifetimes to do cram all the things in that we're trying to do. And um, yeah, no, I definitely feel that. So I am very, uh, as you noted, um, pretty and pretty health conscious and that really helps and I had a okay so I lived in California um I lived in Orange County I was like 30 I was thinking of 30 years old and I went to my doctor 
And I was like, it was, I just moved there and this is my general practice doctor. And I'm like, all right, here are my issues. I get stress and anxiety. I don't sleep. Mm -hmm. I, um, have, I get these, um, contractions in my gut when I'm stressed, I get migraine headaches, you know, whatever. And he looked at me and he said, I know your type. You're like a thoroughbred horse. And what you need to do to feel better is exercise like an Olympic athlete. And he's like, he's like, exercise. Like he needs he's like, and I and I know that you exercise a little bit. Ex, like exercise like you are competing for something. <laughs> anyway, he was absolutely right. It is like totally changed my life. So I now I lift weights. I, um, you know, so I'm, and, and I, it's not like I work out, like, you know what I mean? Like I'm not at the gym for two hours every day. I just, I work out. I try to do something active almost every day, even if it's just going for a 20 minute walk. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I go to the gym probably four times a week and I lift weights and, and, and do cardio and I'm there for an hour and 15 minutes and that's all I need. But I just like have to like go and work out hard and having my body be in good shape is something that helps me incredibly. And so that, and then I do, um, have you ever heard of, uh, um, surrender yoga? It's a yoga practice. It sounds like something I would absolutely hate <laughs> to work. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> that sounds like, my, yeah, well, no, it sounds like my biggest nightmare. <laughs> yeah. No. So this is, yes, it is. No, it is. It is. Cause it's like, you have to like hold these it's, it's instead of like being active, yeah. like where you're, you know, putting your yin, you're, like, you're, you're in like your yin now. It's, it's yin yeah. and you see so like fall into a pose and then you have to sit there for five yeah. minutes with your thoughts, with your thoughts and a stretch. Yeah. But I do that once a week and, um, and it's really, I, I have to say that it's, it's, it, I've been doing that for a couple of years now, three years, three years now. And I, I absolutely can tell when I haven't been doing it because I get too tightly wound. It's really smart. Um, I actually did a yin practice uh, for a while because for people who are not naturally flexible, let's just say, never mind, kind of intense or high strung or uh, overachievers or whatever our reasons, a million reasons are, there is something to be said for yin, which is more of an invitation for the body to move into these positions instead of trying to put it there. I, I right. think it's really smart. Obviously, I'm joking, but just the name surrender and yoga living side by side, it's like, you know. <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah. So I, but for me, it's like having that and then, um, and then exercising and then of course like eating well and all of that. I mean, I'm very much, um, I know so much, you know, it's like if, when we have low levels of inflammation, like if we keep inflammation low and we give our bodies and the body, the nutrients that it needs and we're getting enough sleep and we're getting sunlight, all of these things are, you know, really help to contribute to mental health. And so I try to take them very seriously. Like my, my thing I ask myself is like, what would my ancestors have done? You know, I think like evolutionarily, you know, like what, what are the conditions under which humans thrived for millions of years? Mm -hmm. And it's like, go outside, get some sunshine, walk around, talk to your friends, make time for your family. And so I try to make sure that I, do those things. And then in addition to, of course, the other things. When you, when you, when you talk about how like the pill can really add to anxiety and, and, you know, depression and all these things. And Mm -hmm. and we've talked all about, you know, kind of the reality of, of the, a lot of this stuff. Are you, 
for me, you feel like you're optimistic about it. Do you feel, do you think we're going to maybe, you know, land on something that's a little better for, for women to use to, you know, for birth control? Yeah. I, I think that with technology being what it is, like, I just, I, I, I can't help but have faith that we're going to get there. Um, and I think that what's, you know, I don't think that it's going to be something where it comes to us from like the traditional big pharmaceutical medical research types of arms because they haven't been investing in it. But um, who is investing in it is like, I see a lot of these businesses that are usually being started by women who want something better and are saying that it's time we ask for more and we need to do better and we can do better. I, I think that I think that we're going to hit on some better solutions. I, I I feel confident in that. I think that the more women that we have who are touched by this experience, you know, because I mean we all experience this, and, and and for our daughters, where it's like, how do we regulate our fertility, yeah. and how do we do it in a way that's going to be you know minimally negatively impactful on on our development and and who we are, and um, and that's such such an important question. I mean, I I think it's one of the most important questions out there because it's just how important fertility regulation is for us. So I I feel, yeah, I feel hopeful. Yeah. And I really appreciate that because I also see like so many younger women now having an increasingly more challenging time getting pregnant and just kind of these overall long-term impacts on their their health and sense of well-being. So I, I really... I really appreciate that. If you were to make an invitation to somebody who wanted to learn more, especially like a partner uh, of a woman or a dad, um, and they say, hey, I, I just would like to get more informed or, you know, just try to understand it better or, or for women for that matter. Is there, you know, some type of invitation that you, you would um, extend to them? Yeah, I mean, just learning more about um, birth control. And all of that. I mean, I would say read my book. Yeah. Um, because I think that it's written in a way that is accessible for men and women and for everybody. It's not super sciencey. I mean, it's full of science, but I don't write it in a way that makes it too dry to read. No. Um, so I would say that and just educating yourself. Um, I love the idea of having your partner downloading uh, an app, a cycle tracking yep. app. Um, to learn more about what's going on with um, going on with their partner cycles, because uh, I, I do think that it is incredibly empowering with for men in the relationship, and I think it's really I think it's a, sharing the burden of fertility within a relationship. Yeah. I think is um, I think it's important. I do too. I think I think so. And if you want to talk about something that's sexy, it's a partner that's like, hey, I'm in it with you in the ways that I can be. Because certain ones you can't be, right? Like Laird couldn't right. breastfeed the girls. So it's like, you can help me in some <laughs> other ways, you know? But, and and right. also for guys yeah. to know like, oh, she's here or even more, she'd be more receptive for mm-hmm. certain things. I think, so in, I, I like uh, In The Flow, Elisa Vitti has a good app. I'm, I'm sure there's mm-hmm. others, but I know of that one specifically. Okay, can you just share all the places people can find you? just to go a little deeper if they want. Yeah. So, um, my, uh, I'm on all social, all social media and my handle is at Sarah E Hill PhD and that's Sarah with an H. H. 
<laughs> so Sarah E. Hill, PhD. And then my uh, website is www.sarahehill.com. And my book, uh, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, which is now, um, we just got the paperback version released. Congratulations. I'm really excited about Thank you. Yeah. And that's available everywhere that books are sold. Well, Sarah, I really appreciate the book and the work that you're doing. And also I have to say that sometimes when we're talking about things that maybe there's just no real easy answer that you still drop it off in a way that it's, there's the science and the information, but also it's, it's not like, oh, we're doomed. It's like, we have to stay motivated and inspired to get to these answers. And I think you as one of the messengers does such a beautiful job of kind of housing all of those spirits of, hey, it's hard and this is what's happening, but yet, you know, we're let's get there. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Well, it's true. It's uh it's it's not easy. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at gabbyreese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating, and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.